What does a psychoanalyst do in his practice with his patients? How can we define the act of the psychoanalyst at work? It is this vast question that Bernard Penault addresses in this podcast, talking about the act of the psychoanalyst in the service of subjectivation, referring to Freud's work on transference and then to Lacan's work on the psychoanalytical act during the years of student revolts in France in May 1968, he manages to show us the active involvement of the psychoanalyst in the practice of the cures he provides. Bernard Penault is a French psychoanalyst. He lives and works in Paris. He has been a full member and training analyst of the Paris Psychoanalytical Society since 1990. As neuropsychiatrist, he was the director of a day hospital for adolescents in Paris for many years. He is the author of several books published in French and of numerous articles published in the French Journal of Psychoanalysis and in the International Journal of Psychoanalysis. I am Julia Floralibert with Talks on Psychoanalysis, the podcast devoted to current topics on psychoanalysis worldwide featuring the voices of the original authors. This podcast series, published by the International Psychoanalytical Association, is part of the activities of the IPA Communication Committee and is produced by the IPA Podcast Editorial Team. Head of the podcast editorial team is Gaetano Pellegrini. To stay informed about the latest podcast releases, please sign up today. The act of the psychoanalyst in the service of subjectivation. Today, more than ever, psychoanalysts must work on better defining their act, if only to characterize this act better in relation to the multiple other practices said to be psychotherapeutic. But in order to do this, They must begin by recognizing their active involvement in the practice of the analysis that they conduct. For psychoanalysts have long had the tendency to avoid recognizing the dimension of the act of their practice as if they had a difficulty in principle in assuming responsibility for such active involvement. In the 1960s, however, Jacques Lacan had sought to conceptualize this dimension of the act of the practice of the analyst. In the historical context of the upheavals of May 1968, Lacan chose precisely to title his seminar of that year The Psychoanalytic Act. He too begins by noting that the active dimension of the work of the analyst always tends to be widely overlooked. Quote, its truth as an act has remained concealed, he observed. He even thought he was the first to speak about it explicitly. 
Within the psychoanalytic movement after Freud, the famous veil of neutrality largely eclipsed the active involvement of the psychoanalyst in the analysis that he carried out. It should be pointed out, however, that Freud himself speaks nowhere of neutrality of the analyst. He speaks only of restraint or reserve. The prevailing impression is that Freud, for his part, fully accepted that his sessions of analysis were in the nature of a therapeutic act. Indeed, we can note the activist tone of many of his papers written between 1910 and 1918, those that were brought together under the label Papers on Technique. Freud didn't hesitate in them to indicate the practical attitude that he considers appropriate on the part of the analyst doctor. Thus, in Observations on Transference Love, 1915, Freud stresses the necessity for the psychoanalyst of making use of the love of his patients. He recommends to accept as far as is possible the love that is transferred, without of course responding to it, in order to put it in the service of the work of analysis. He says, quote, to urge the patient to repress, renounce or sublimate her instincts, the, move, the moment he, she has admitted her erotic transference would be not an analytic way of dealing with them, but a senseless one. It would be just as though, after summoning up a spirit from the underworld by cunning spells, one were to send him down again without leaving, without having asked him a single question. One would have brought the repressed into consciousness only to repress it once more in a fright. Unquote. The fact remains that such a complacent welcome by the psychoanalyst doctor clearly contravenes the rules of the Hippocratic Oath, which, as we know, requires us to refrain from forming bonds of love with our patients. Freud is thus defending here a psychoanalytic ethic that differs tangibly from the traditional medical morality. And in so doing, he seeks to better characterize the particular practice of the psychoanalyst, of the psychoanalyst consisting notably in making use of the transference love without suppressing it, but without coacting it either. By conceiving his, ver his first metapsychology from 1910 onwards, Freud was attempting to free the psychoanalytic act not only from the rules governing medical behavior as codified by Hippocrates, but also to differentiate it from other practices that took the human person as their object, such as teaching, educating, governing. We know that Freud liked to compare the psychoanalytic profession with these other professions, which he also described as impossible professions, in as much as they, as they purport to influence human subjectivity. But the practice of the psychoanalyst differs from that of the educator, which is necessarily moralizing and normative, 
from that of the teacher, which consists essentially in transmitting an already established body of knowledge, and finally, from that of the governor who orders and prescribes. Concerning the active practice of the psychoanalyst, Freud was still more affirmative in his communication to the Fifth International Congress of Psychoanalysis in Budapest at the end of the war in autumn 1918. It seemed that the practice of psychoanalysis could begin again in Europe at this, and the theme chosen was the path of psychoanalytic therapy. Freud didn't hesitate there to recommend explicitly the position held by Frenzy, which placed strong emphasis on the activity of the analyst. And Freud even went as far as to declare that passive waiting often seemed to him to be counterproductive with neurotic patients. But let us return now to what Lacan maintained in 1968 in his unpublished seminar, The Psychoanalytic Act. Lacan began by stating that the essence of the Psychoanalytic Act is to, quote, revolutionize something, unquote. He can, of course, see this, we can, of course, see this as a somewhat optimistic way on his part of putting analytic practice on the right side, namely of the anti-establishment movement that was dominant that same year, especially among, among young people. But Lacan was to propose the following analysis. The student revolt, he said, strived to denounce something that, quote, had remained concealed in the bubble of university knowledge, unquote. He considered that the protest movement of 1968 sought essentially to reveal certain harmful effects of scientific progress on economic and social life, namely an increasingly rigorous and, one might say, desubjectivizing capitalist exploitation. Lacan deemed that the university had long covered over this complacently and silently. It could be said today that a real shared denial was maintained officially concerning the harmful effects of technical and scientific advances. It was this concealment of meaning which, according to Lacan, the return in concrete reality of the barricades and paving stones sought to unmask. We can see an extension of this today with respect to the progress of liberal globalization, the planetary balance sheet of the so-called modernity obliged us to take into account the negative effects of scientific and technical progress through the reality of waste products pollution, and social inequalities producing violences. It is interesting to note that by referring to something concealed that would make its return unexpectedly in concrete actuality, Lacan was merely taking up the very terms employed by Freud in his discovery of the phenomenon of transference in his psychoanalytic treatments. Freud first speaks about 
it as the emergence in the course of the session of a certain disturbance that disrupts the analytic work. The patient feels that there is something about the analyst that bothers him. At first, Freud considered this phenomenon as a resistance, insofar as it presented an obstacle to the patient's associative discourse or even interrupted it, producing an effect of blinding. But on looking at the situation more closely, the same Freud soon realized that this disturbing phenomenon was in fact a means of transferring, displacing key elements in the immediacy of the therapeutic relationship and that taking them into account could give concrete access to valuable truths that the patient wasn't aware of concerning his history. He concluded about the phenomena of transference as follows, quote, It should not be forgotten that it is precisely they that do us the inestimable service of making the patient's hidden and forgotten erotic impulses immediate and manifest. For when all is said and done, it is impossible to destroy anyone in absentia or in effigy. It was thus by taking the transference into account that Lacan thought it was possible for analysis to eat into the real of raw experience by allowing for a better recognition and therefore subjectivation of it. In short, if the act of the psychoanalyst has a capacity to revolutionize something, it is on the condition that the analyst knows how to make use of the transference in such a way as to help the patient grasp the concealed meaning that it conveys and to ensure that it is taken into account. It can be said that Freud's work consisted essentially in laying down the foundations of a scientific approach to a subjective object, an object that he continued to call, to call Seelenleben, literally soul life, improperly translated as mental life. Seelenleben dear to the philosophical tradition, even though Freud saw nothing supernatural in it. We know that Freud liked to compare his scientific approach with that of contemporary physics, particularly due to the latter's capacity to call into question its own concepts in the light of new findings. He witnessed the beginning of quantum physics, which made it possible precisely to specify the famous complex natural objects. These objects are called complex because different experimental means need to be employed to grasp their various properties, and consequently a single mode of theorization doesn't suffice to account for their composite nature. The first object that was considered complex was light, with its dual nature as wave and particle, each of which could only be observed by different means. In the same time, physics had more and more to recognize how its approach was participative, having to take into account the effects of the observer in the result of its observation, thus reducing the gap between the so-called human and exact sciences. The subjective disposition of a psychoanalyst 
The qualities of his desire to practice analysis constitute the initial offer that he makes more or less consciously to the patient. It is this offer that will determine at the beginning of each analysis whether or not the patient will have the possibility of transferring usefully his unconscious problems. This means that the deployment of the transference and the qualities, positive or negative, that it can assume will depend to a large part on the receptive disposition of the psychoanalyst and the openness that he thereby offers his patient. This decisive factor of subjective disposition of the analyst at the beginning of each analysis is not dissimilar from what happens at the birth of each human being. The expectations of the biological parents, their desiring dispositions, will determine to a large extent the aptitude of the baby to constitute itself as a subject. The postulates the parents their way of anticipating their baby by supposing that it is already a subject form one of the basic conditions, alongside, of course, the good biological disposition of the baby itself, basic conditions of the chances of the latter's subjective development. But starting from this openness that he has been able to offer at the beginning of each analysis, the psychoanalyst will only be in a position to foster the transformative, the revolutionizing dynamic on the condition that he is able to maintain himself thereafter in a position that is ambiguous. First, it is by assuming the role of one who is supposed to know in the patient's eyes, without believing in it, of course, that the analyst sets the process going. It is through his posture of the big other who remains silent that the analyst elicits from the outset the indispensable transference of the patient and allows him to choose the form that it needs to take, positive, negative, aggressive, erotic, dependent, regressive transference, etc. But, second, once the said transference has been established and irrespective of its qualities, the psychoanalyst will have to the task of gradually making it explicit, of analyzing it in such a way as to make it understandable for the patient. Interpretative speech has the function of elucidating, that is, of more or less denouncing the misunderstanding of the transference that initially called an, that Freud initially called an achronistic false connection before he came to see it as a valuable indicator which analysis must use of. But it can be said that the activity of the psychoanalyst rests on preserving a somewhat awkward position that is necessary for maintaining the dynamic of the process. Freud illustrated this nicely in his commentary on a novel by Wilhelm Jensen, The Gradiva, Gradiva, the woman who walks, Gradiva, which shows that it is a destabilization of the body that determines the aptitude for moving forwards. 
Lacan was certainly right when he asserted very clearly that the act of the psychoanalyst consists primarily in supporting the transference. In other words, not just in submitting to or enduring it, but we could say fostering it, following Freud's indication concerning transference love. The psychoanalyst's first task, indeed, is to receive and gather up the particular transference that each patient needs to direct towards him, even if this transference is negative hostile. For the good reason that by having, ma having made himself the transference object of his patient, analyst will be able to inform himself about what he will have to analyze. It is clear indeed that Even though he has assumed the role of one who is supposed to know, the analyst doesn't know, in fact, at the outset, which object of unconscious jouissance he will have to embody and for the analyst. But he will learn that what he needs to know through the transference experience, which will always remain the psychoanalyst's compass, from one end of the adventure to the other. But later on, Lacan was to say that, quote, by his act, the psychoanalyst has the function of presenting a refutation in the analysis. Or the first action of the analyst of tolerating the transference, receiving the transference, tends, in fact, above all, to establish a silent complicity. This reactualization in the transference doesn't in itself produce a refutation. Rather, it presentifies in the analysis the symptom needing to be analyzed, what Freud referred to as transference neurosis. It is only the verbal recognition of this complaisance when the time comes that will bring a refutation insofar as the term démentir, to belie, means literally to expose a lie. The refutation brought by the psychoanalyst's interpretation only comes then during the second stage of his act, that of elucidating analyzing the transference symptom with the lifting of the silent complaisance that had been maintained hitherto. Lacan says quite clearly that it is a matter here of, quote, playing on something that your act will belie. He adds that this will consist in, quote, making something pass over from jouissance to speech. Interpreting the transference indeed means encouraging the patient to let go of repeated acted compulsion to give up the primary jouissance inherent in the symptom and to benefit instead from understanding it. It is therefore an operation which requires the patients to leave behind a direct satisfaction, even if masochistic, in order to gain access to the benefit of better understanding. Both the anachronism of his transference and its valuable charge of truth concerning the personal genesis of this patient as a subject.
In order to carry out such an operation of refutation, the analyst will have to show that he is capable of operating between two stumbling blocks, I would prefer to say surfing between two waterfalls, each of which would be fatal for the process. First, interpreting, belying, contradicting, too quickly, without having sufficiently gathered and tolerated the transference, tends to be perceived by the patient as a failure to respond to the demand. The analyst would say, I'm not the person you think. That is a rejection by the analyst of the validity of the transference directed towards him. This can only encourage the patient, in turn, to consider his transference, catexis, as irrelevant for nourishing his personal subjective elaboration and to turn his back of the music. But on the other hand, not interpreting and limiting oneself to shouldering the transference on the pretext of making use of it psychotherapeutically amounts to maintaining the patient's mystification indefinitely. The analyst's complacent passiveness tends then to give the impression that the transference and the supposed knowledge is a reality by allowing a situation of shared denial with the patient to persist. Winnicott explained how he felt it was necessary for him as an analyst to give interpretation. Quote, if I make known, the patient gets the impression that I understand everything. Unquote. The psychoanalytic act can thus be characterized by the fact that it aims to bring about a better subjectivation of the unconscious through the transference experience. Now, to conclude, I would like to explain a little better this key concept of subjectivation. We can see better now that the act of subjectivizing is in itself a complex and even paradoxical operation. To say that something is subjectivized primarily evokes the idea of appropriating it personally. This is what may be called the active side of the operation, that which contributes to the fleshing out of the ego in the sense given to it by Freud in negation. I will, I shall be, it shall be inside me, not outside me. But at the same time, advancing towards a better subjectivation of one's life implies quite another disposition. As an analyzant makes progress during his sessions, he can be seen to develop a better capacity for recognizing that he is subjected. This can be verified throughout an analysis and also throughout life. If subjectivizing consists in appropriating one's own unconscious impulses, this means coming to a better acceptance of what determines us, subjects us as subject. As a result, we can see subjectivation progressing during the process of analysis in terms of the patient's increased aptitude for better passivation, beginning with that of recognizing that he is subject of the unmeanings that emerge when he lets himself associate freely. It is a matter, in short, of letting oneself become the subject of one's own unconscious discourse, 
crystallized in each one of us on the basis of our first interactions with our first partners and their unconscious. And we can see that subjectivation, insofar as it implies the recognition of a subjection, is more than a mere reinforcement of the ego. Thus, the translation of Freud's famous expression, wo es war, soll ich werden, in 1933, 31st lecture, was a source of sharp debate and capable of accounting for the process of subjectivation as such. In closing, I would like to draw attention to how the notion of epigenesis has recently imposed itself with the key idea that early experiences are an indispensable factor in the activation of genes in mammals. This seems to me to really inject a breath of fresh air into the future prospects of psychoanalytic practice, which seemed threatened at the end of the last century by the ascendancy of biological determinism at all, alone. The decisive importance of early interactions as the foundation of subjective development is therefore indisputable. Thank you.